Hey everyone, welcome back to the 443 Security Simplified. I'm your host, Mark the Liberty, and joining me today is Corey, the five letter acronym doctor. <laughs> On today's ep- five letter acronym, okay, whatever. On today's episode, C O R E Y. Oh, yeah, there we go. Yeah, uh, we will cover the latest from a four letter government acronym, uh, dive into a security vulnerability impacting a, uh, with a pretty serious impact, all things considered, and then do a rapid fire coverage of our latest quarterly internet security report from the WatchGuard Threat Lab. With that, let's go ahead and roll on in. So last episode, uh, and I feel like, man, every episode for the last few months, we've had some discussion on our favorite uh, four-letter government agency. Uh, but last week, we discussed CISA's alert on specific tools targeting industrial control systems and SCADA devices. Uh, well, this week, CISA and all of its counterparts across the Five Eyes intelligence sharing community, so U.S., New Zealand, Australia, Great Britain, and Canada, um, all put out a joint advisory titled Russian State-Sponsored and Criminal Cyber Threats to Critical Infrastructure. Uh, which is a pretty big call out to exactly what they're trying to chat about. Basically, the alert starts out with a immediate call to action for critical infrastructure organizations, basically saying it's warning of retaliatory attacks by Russia in, correspo- in response to the unprecedented ele- uh, economic costs imposed on them, as well as material support by the U.S. and other allies in the war with Ukraine, basically saying there's a imminent threat to critical infrastructure from a hackback attack kind but of it's, thing. But it's, it's not a war, Mark. It's just a <laughs> military exercise. That's what Putin told me. I'm sure this is just Sorry. a cybersecurity Sarcasm. exercise then, too. Yeah, this must just be a cybersecurity exercise. <laughs> I'm being sarcastic, uh, they also, listeners, I'm sure yes. you know. <laughs> I also said, additionally, some cybercrime groups have recently publicly pledged support for the Russian government and have threatened to conduct cyber operations in retaliation for perceived cyber offensives against the Russian government and Russian people. And CISA and the other organizations urge critical infrastructure network defenders to prepare for and mitigate potential cyber threats, including destructive malware, ransomware, DDoS attacks, and cyber espionage. Um, so like, it really feels like the, the rhetoric, at least, is ramping up in just these past few weeks of first, you know, talking about some tools that they'd seen, some attack patterns. There's always been like a, I feel like almost bi-weekly or monthly CISL alert for critical infrastructure. But this one was very overt and feeling like they have evidence of a potential like imminent threat to some of these uh, verticals and critical infrastructure. What's your thoughts on that, Corey? I, I mean, they definitely say there's a. I, I didn't get the sense of imminent because they gave so much openness of like, it, this doesn't sound like one specific threat. This is just saying that lots of Russian actors, many of them state sponsored, but different groups, but many of them criminal, could do almost anything against a lot of critical infrastructure and organizations. So the imminence was, yes, all related to the Ukraine war. So it, it's imminent in that they are looking for the retaliation, but and they probably have evidence for some things. I mean, I know they see th- stuff going on in Ukraine and stuff is happening here. You know, we certainly know of stuff ourselves. Uh, but 
the the only thing is you mentioned the evidence of it. I'm sure there's things to go with this, but it felt more like a general warning to me too, in some sense, especially when you get to the practical tips. And you're right. Like also, this is one of the longest alerts that I've seen out of CISA at 20 pages because they basically go into every single major Russian state-sponsored APT, as well as some of these like criminal underground ones, or at least adjacent or related ones, and talk about you know, some of the activity they've done and their typical attack patterns too, just to kind of lay the framework yeah. of this is what you need to potentially defend against. They give great tools, tax and tools, tactics and procedures and high level overviews of each of the threat actor groups. By the way, total aside, but it just reminds me of how crappy it is that the security organizations in the world, the security industry and the government can't agree on naming when it comes to threat actor um, groups oh my god because like <laughs> yes. everyone has like 12 aliases because of course you know every security vendor wants to be able to be the first to name something so rather than using a name someone else uses they insist on so it just blew me away that you know the, our, our government will call the the state sponsored one something bears and i guess the criminal ones had mm -hmm. to do with a lot of spiders I and mean, let's give an example of this like GRU 85th Main Special Service Center, also known as APT 28, Fancy Bear, Group 74, Iron Twilight, Pondstorm, Sednit, Snake Mackerel, Sofacy, Strontium, Swallowtail, TG 4127, Threat Group 4127, and SAR Team. And that's like one of 12 <laughs> they told us. And I, I by the way, I <laughs> because we've worked with the government before, I think they're irritated by it too because they have their own internal name for it, but they have to list like 10 different aliases because the dumb industry can't get our heads out of our butt because we all want credit for things even though everyone is seeing these actors at once. So irritated by the naming, but that has nothing to do with the report. Uh, it is interesting to hear about the criminals, you know, uh, by the way, some of those criminals got have been hacked back because of hacktivists. You know, I think our evil or Ryuk early on made a statement that they support Russia and then got kind of slapped by Conti. hacktivists. There you go, Conti. Yeah. yeah. So it, it it is interesting to see how criminal Russian criminal actors are also kind of supporting it. But at the end of the day, it was very general. Uh, I will say their practical tips are great, but it's really like everything in the kitchen sink. I mean, because they're talking about this could be anything from a DOS attack to ransomware that can come in in all kinds of different ways. They have to give you kind of general practical security tips for everything. So the tips are excellent. And I'll say they even go into more detail like uh, we could summarize as a tip is use good identity authentication and MFA, but they go into much more detail. What is good identity authentication? Well, you don't want to use Microsoft's old school hashes. Here's a way to change window, you know, use the proper version, turn off these settings and windows uh, for Kerberos, TechKits, here's what to do. They go into some in-depth stuff on how you can really use stronger identity you know, validation and stuff like that. So I think it's all very good tips, but to me, it mostly seemed to be an alert that just kind of outlined general highlights about the different Russian criminal and state actor groups, and then practical security tips that anyone can use to protect their organization from anything. And I'm sure they have evidence of little things these groups are doing, but the fact that they throw the kitchen sink at you, just it, I'm sure they just are expecting lots of attacks. It really was six pages of 
uh, preventative recommendations, basically. Like normally an alert is like six pages long with one page of here's some bullets to do. And you're right. They've really expanded on a lot of them on specific examples, too. And I appreciate that, right? Because sometimes for time's sake, we have to do something like make sure to, to, to set up the right configuration for your Windows authentication. But they go into some depth that actually, you know, default settings. So when, there's lots of things you can do to actually get you know, not have Windows's legacy authentication issues and use some of their more modern stuff that has better protection. So I, I appreciate the tips for sure. Uh, yeah, but some of this, I, yeah, I'm sure there's evidence of attacks uh, that are happening. You know, we certainly know of attempts of attacks with our own Cyclops Blink, uh, but uh, it seemed very general to me, but that's in a good way. It's kind of a high level education and and watch out for these threat actors retaliating. I, mean, you know, I mentioned it last week that it does feel like we're on the cusp of something targeting a lot of uh, critical infrastructure out of the the far uh, Eastern Europe. Like it, it definitely feels like they're planning on doing something based off of all the just the constant deluge of alerts we're getting from our intelligence organizations. So, uh, But we do know, I mean, some of the attacks are working, didn't? Uh, there was very strong indicators. In fact, Russia got into one of the energy facilities in Ukraine, but the defenders were able to stop anything from happening, I think either just last week or this week. So in Ukraine itself, they absolutely do see these attacks happening. It will be interesting to see if Russia expands to Western countries they're mad at just because we're sending arms and doing sanctions because, you know, I assume the reason... What do you think the retaliation will be to that? I, I don't know, but I feel like at this point, Putin is doing everything he can to try to get Western and NATO to enter the fray because he's trying to poke at Ukraine and see how much he can get away with. And we're doing everything we can to, I, I'm assuming at the White House, to try to support them without going into a war against Russia that could be both a nuclear, you know, kinetic war and a cyber right. war. But if Russia insists on taking this outside of Ukraine and start attacking other countries simply because of we we're basically doing sanctions and saying we don't want to work with you because we think what you're doing in Ukraine is bad, but we're not attacking you. So, I, I mean, I, I'm not the president, but if they start to act we're not in the conflict other than saying we don't like it and not supporting Russia economically. So if they attack back because of that and do this, I I would assume <laughs> NATO or the U.S. or whoever will have to do some sort of retaliation because you can't let bullies just get away with things that are wrong and evil. Attacking other countries, cyber or directly, uh, especially if they're not involved in an armed conflict, but are just trying to tell you through sanctions that we don't agree with what you're doing. It just, it seems wrong, obviously wrong on every level. So I feel like if anything real happened, we would have to respond. But that's the crap with cyber warfare. It's really hard to prove, you know what I mean? It's all he said, said she yep. said. I'm sure our intelligence agencies know for sure it's Russia. But do you start a war when Russia is saying, oh, we didn't do that cyber attack? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I'm glad I'm not making the decision. I don't envy our intelligence organizations. Or, right or the freaking leadership that has to make the decision based on the intelligence. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't want to make the decision. And if you are a critical infrastructure organization, make sure you follow this alert. And uh, hopefully by now, if you have enacted strong technical controls and monitoring to limit and respond to a cyber attack but if you're somehow behind the game now's the time to get on it apparently because time is running out
Um, so also last week, researchers disclosed a vulnerability in how recent Java releases implement the elliptic curve DSA signature algorithm, uh, which they've dubbed psychic paper. So there's a bit to unpack there. First off, why psychic paper? Uh, so if you're not a Doctor Who fan, um, anytime he goes to show his ID to someone demanding his ID, he holds up what looks like effectively a blank identification card. But the reality is it's psychic paper and it causes that individual to see whatever they want to see to allow him to continue moving on. A Jedi mind trick for people that have future technology but no Jedi powers. Yep, exactly. Uh, you'll understand why they've chosen this name in just a little bit. Um, so also we need to define elliptic curve DSA signatures. So it's a form of kind of cryptographic signature that can be used either in TLS certificates, so certificates for websites, uh, handshakes for TLS encryption, so HTTPS, JSON web tokens, which are one of the more commonly used forms of proving authentication to a web app, um, SAML assertions, so authenticating between different web apps and environments, open IDC tokens, like it's really... ECDSA is used all over the place to verify the authenticity of a, a piece of data. So the whether it be the certificate for a site or some data that it's passing. Um, there's a lot of math that goes on behind the scenes here, but at a very high level, basically the, in the system that is verifying that signature uses a math equation and checks two values given by the person requesting verification. It's called R and S. Uh, the public key of the signer, and then a hash of the message. And basically, if both sides of the equation are equal, then it says the signature is valid. Uh, that verification involves multiplying those values R and some value derived from S by a whole bunch of stuff. And if you remember back to fourth grade math school, uh, if either R or S or really anything you're multiplying in there is the number of zero, then every other bit of math in there is going to be zero after multiplying it. So this means that the very first step in most ECDSA verification algorithms is to make sure that R and S are greater than one to prevent that particular style of weakness. Uh, you can probably guess what I'm getting at on what some of these versions of Java didn't implement for their signature verification processes. Or maybe we should say they 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 had implemented but somehow reverted like it, this this is a new they've they've had uh, ECDSA for a long time in Java and I, apparently I, I guess it affects a lot of old versions but it sounds like they readded this to an update. It is relatively new. That's how new. the researcher found it. Yeah. So they yeah, they um recently, well relatively recently rewrote their ECDSA code from C++ into native Java. And it was during that change that it was kind of or introduced into here. The researcher dug like th through a little bit of mud, basically saying it looks like the bulk of that code didn't go through a lot of code reviews or testing. Um, but I mean, the reality is they missed this pretty strict step zero part of the, the verification system, which what this basically boils down to is on a vulnerable system that's trying to verify one of these signatures. Um, if you provide information, a like a valid signature, where R and S are zero, it accepts it as a valid signature. So there's proof of concepts out there showing how you could use this to man in the middle um, a HTTPS connection by providing a valid looking certificate. There's ways to um, uh, spoof a JSON web token. So 
uh, a proof making the that web app think that you were authenticated as XYZ user when in reality you weren't. Like it's a pretty dang serious deal. Basically, this blank ID card of you saying, "Yep, this is a valid signature," because you provide a couple of zeros. If I can multiply anything by zero, it's always going to be true. It's funny, totally unrelated flaw, but it's it's the, the simple. It's a logic issue that computer security, secure coding folks have known about forever. I mean, if you think about SQL injection, half the or any sort of script injection, half of the tricks we do is when we can inject script when there's any logic trying to compare values to see if something's true, like comparing a password or a username, if you can ever get some logic inserted in there that makes it always true, <laughs> such as, uh, you know, commenting out a little string, but acting a, uh, adding a or one equals, or just adding or one equals one, because it doesn't matter what the other thing is. If you can add or Boolean logic and one equals one, it doesn't matter what the rest of the equation is it's always true so it's neat how this simple once once you allow uh rs to be zero everything about ec dsa is is gone everything will be true and thus obviously the psychic paper so just a fun logic thing that uh, has always been in computer security which i think is why this is such a big deal that Java, who's been around for a while and should know secure code. I mean, this is kind of a basic flaw, I think, at least in the researcher's opinion, because it's such a simple and obvious logic issue. Yeah, 100%. And like the impact is there are a lot of systems out there that use Java and ECDSA signatures in some form. Uh, if you are a WatchGuard customer to that end, uh, we are investigating. And so far, for all of our components, we have checked that use Java. We have found none of them running one of the vulnerable versions. So we're so far so good, but we're still going to continue digging into it but like even like outside our organization specifically like java is widely used especially some of these recent versions think of it kind of like log4j it can be in hardware too uh in fact the researcher put yubikey yubikey is a very common mfa product and according to him this could be affected although he did add a asterisk to it and it turned out that yubikey probably responded to him and i think they implement the, the ECDSA checks with Java slightly differently. But to your point, Mark, it, it could be in lots of software platforms, your own code if you're using Java, and uh, even hardware platforms that you may not think about, like you know even tiny little devices like a YubiKey. So this has the potential to be a pretty serious and potentially difficult to identify and resolve flaw, depending on how many different vendors and platforms you use. Uh, it does only affect Java 15, 16, 17, and 18. Um, only. So if you're only, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so if you're using any of those, make sure that you update them with the latest security patches. I will say, like Java's response left a little bit to be left to be desired, and that it took five months to fix this, which this is a pretty like ground break. It fundamentally breaks this otherwise secure hashing algorithm. So that was a bit interesting. I wonder what the yeah, I wonder the same thing. Like I, I assume the fix for this itself was probably pretty quick and easy. I mean, they they should pretty quickly be able to add code to make sure that uh, RSR always greater or equal to one. Uh, so I assume it's more that once they realized that such a simple thing was in. And maybe the researcher obviously suggested that he thinks there wasn't much uh, auditing done to this new source. Maybe they decided, you know, even though we have the fix, we're going to do a really strong audit and 
get a lot of stuff fixed with it. That, that's the only thing I can think of. I agree, five months is, is a while. But maybe it's more complex. Again, the other issue is Java is in everything. So it's not just about fixing a vulnerability. It's about doing it in a way that doesn't break things that a lot of their partners were using at the time with the old version. Yeah, that, I mean, I'm willing to bet it's probably something along those lines. You have to be careful. But it's been, it makes sense to do a code review as well and make sure there aren't any other low-hanging fruit. Long story short, though, if you're using Java, update it. Uh, so the last bit I wanted to cover uh, was actually I realized that due to some like vacation timings, we actually never chatted about our latest quarterly internet security report from the WatchGuard Threat Lab, at least on this podcast. Um, I'll say a lot of you probably saw uh, Corey's and Trevor's webinar on the topic. Um, if you haven't already checked out the report itself, it's watchguard.com slash security report. But I wanted to take at least a few minutes here to go over some of like the key high-level stats and some of the big findings and takeaways from this quarter's report, just for our podcast listeners that uh, use us as the source for some of this threat intel and analytics that we do. Um, so not as big of a deep dive as you're probably used to, but we'll start at just the high level, some of the key stats from the Firebox feed. So I guess before diving into that, Corey, quick overview of what the Firebox feed is and maybe why we do the report. Yeah, yeah, sure. So we, we basically do the report because life has changed and that includes the the threats out there. You know, as good defenders find new ways to defend, bad guys adjust their their tactics to try to get past our latest defenses. So change is normal in life. It can be good or bad, but the point is the better you can adapt to change, the better you'll survive. So the whole point of the report is to give you quantifiable intelligence about how the threat landscape is changing so that you can adapt by evolving your defenses with that change. Uh, the Firebox feed is just a marketing name for all the data we collect from our network security appliances. It collects data by blocking malware, blocking network attacks using IPS, uh, DNS watch, DNS firewall, being able to sync whole links that people accidentally click on, and a number of other things. So by the way, the Firebox feed is the bulk of the report, but now we also get data from we don't really add it to the Firebox feed because it's a whole different product, but our endpoint products, uh, Adaptive Defense 360 and WatchGuard EPDR also have a threat intelligence for the malware and the scripts that they're blocking. Um, and even, you know, sometimes, though I don't think we've reported on it yet, but they even get uh, exploit techniques on the local device. So uh, the point is the Firebox feed is a lot of the threat intelligence stuff we know is being attempted around the world and blocked for that matter by our devices so that we can let you know quantifiable attacks that are happening. And then besides the Firebox feed, same type of thing, but from the endpoint perspective, thanks to our endpoint products. So at a high level from the Firebox feed in quarter four of 2021, we actually had the most malware detections by volume that we had ever had since starting this report. Like gateway antivirus malware was at around 13 million. If I remember right, our evasive malware threats were around 10 million. Um, basically, massive increases, 33% for that APT block, like the evasive ones just on the face quarter over quarter. So, I mean, we had always for the last like two years now during the pandemic, kind of surmised that, you know, malware detections were staying down because a lot of folks were working remotely, less traffic uh, trans uh, going through the network perimeter and potentially downloading malware, for example. And it does definitely seem as organizations are potentially opening back up um, that these malware volumes are 
skyrocketing quite substantially. And it makes sense, at least from the U.S. perspective, as I think the December and November time frame was a period that not, not all states, but a lot of U.S. states did have a lot of people that were in knowledge-based work. Granted, there, there's not knowledge-based work that have been working normally for a long time, but knowledge-based workers are just starting to return back to the office some in, in December of last year. So it makes sense for the timing. Uh, so it's interesting, not only the highest ever, but definitely a huge resurgence because for the past two years, malware was lower than yeah, normal. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one of the other key takeaways from the malware section was 67% of all the malware uh, we saw arrived over an encrypted channel. Now, we actually have to derive that percentage because there's still a substantial portion of our Firebox customer base that don't inspect HTTPS encrypted traffic at their perimeter. And that means is if you aren't inspecting it, you're missing two thirds of all the malware that's trans uh, that's going through your perimeter and basically just relying on endpoint protection at that point. One of the other key trends that we track every single quarter is what we call the zero day malware number which is the percentage of malware that gets past signature-based anti-malware services, either because it's you know, brand new, doesn't have a signature, or more commonly because it's old and they've just used tools like packers, encryptors, and other obfuscation and evasion techniques to let it get past these uh, services that rely just on a signature. Um, for quarter four of 2021, that zero-day malware number was at 66%. It actually jumped up to 77%. Uh, for malware that arrived over an HTTPS connection. And by the way, just, so not the highest we've yeah. seen, but still really high. Yeah, so it's a very high APT percentage number, but it's not the highest we've seen. But remember, while the percentage compared to signatures is not the highest we've seen, the, the volume itself is the highest we've seen. We've never seen this much evasive malware by volume, even though when you compare it to the tons of signature malware coming through as well, it's it's kind of a, a high percentage, but not the record breaker. Um, so normally we would talk about a few of the key like malware threats that um, our analysts uh, analyzed for the report. <laughs> I'd say definitely check out the report. So, yes, Research. I'm eloquent with words today. <laughs> Yes. Are researchers <laughs> analyzed or are analysts researched? One I, I don't know. Words are hard today. Um, I would instead steer you towards the report itself or the webinar that Corian gave just a few weeks ago um, for some of those key like details on some of the specific threats that we saw in the top 10 by volume, as well as some of our other top lists by just overall breadth targeting individual networks. Yeah, they, you should check out the report. One, one interesting one, just really quickly, is we did see an IRC-based botnet return, which is interesting because the command and control What's IRC, is, pop, pop, Corey? is old. <laughs> Internet relay chat. And I'm sure that's something that even uh, uh, our listeners probably know. Uh, but nowadays, IRC is not. That's how botnets first blew up was on IRC, using that as command and control. But it's actually unusual now. So... Probably not the, the most fancy, sophisticated botnet out there, but kind of interesting to see a high volume of IRC-based botnet. So just a little sample of some of the other detail you can get for the malware we saw if you go to yep. the report. Uh, when it came to network attacks, uh, so one of the other stats we tracked, so these are detections by the Firebox Appliances Intrusion Prevention Service, which is a signature-based service looking for threats targeting network-connected applications, web applications, uh, network-connected clients, so on and so forth. Um, it topped 5.7 million detections, which is the highest that has reached in over three years, basically the highest ever aside from this pretty big spike we had three and a half, four years ago or so. 
Um, so even with malware volumes being up, network attacks seem to be up quite substantially as well. One interesting uh, key bit for that, though, is 61% of the network attacks we saw targeted the Americas. So North America, Central America, and South America. One, one other thing regionally I found interesting, Mark, by the way, is that totally flip-flops regionally if you look at malware. So as Mark just said, you know, almost 61%, I think it was 60.9% of network attacks were to America. With with EMEA, you know, Europe, Middle East, Africa, only 10%, so kind of a trailing third. But if you look at the malware numbers, almost 58%, I guess 48.6% of malware was targeting EMEA, which was the least targeted among network attacks. And the Americas was the third for malware at 22%. So I just think it's interesting how regionally the difference between malware attacks and network attacks can totally flip. I mean, in the past, we've also seen them be, be in sync, but this quarter, you know, really high network attacks towards the Americas but much less malware towards America as compared to all the other countries. One of the other stats that we have been tracking um, every single quarter in the most recent reports is from the endpoint, uh, where we're able to get basically data from threats that have arrived at the endpoint, either um, going around or through the perimeter. Maybe they were evasive and you weren't inspecting your HTTPS traffic, or maybe they were brought in on a thumb drive or picked up from a remote employee working from home. Um, one of the key stats that we track is what we call the malware origin or attack vector, which is basically the the initial program or piece of the puzzle that started the malware incident on the host. Like, what did it exploit or what did it abuse in order to kick off this malware attack? And for the uh, continuing trend, uh, script-based attacks... Uh, continue to dominate all other categories. Basically, 86% of the malware we saw on the endpoint was initiated with a script of some sort, whether that be PowerShell, JScript, VBScript. It still remains an extremely popular method for kicking off these attacks, largely because like this is one of the hallmarks of a fileless malware attack where a lot of this can take place just in memory, which makes it really difficult for some legacy systems to pick up and catch these style of threats. Yep, totally agree. Uh, it, by the way, it's not 100% that every script re attack will re will result in a living off a land attack. It, you know, some scripts may just be used to exploit something and start a download of a file. But we do attest this growth likely because more and more attackers are using the living off the land attacks because they just evade legacy defenses. If you're not using things like EDR, uh, things like our products, which have contextual detection and contextual detection, if a command line prompt or a PowerShell pops up on your computer, we pay attention and we watch contextually what that PowerShell is doing. You know, command line and PowerShell and all of these scripts are normal and legitimate in a lot of cases. Every website uses JavaScript to do a whole bunch of stuff. But that's why we have to look contextually to see what is happening on the endpoint when PowerShell is executed to, to try to catch these much more difficult living off the land attacks. So, yeah, scripts up are very likely, like Mark said, fileless malware. Uh, but do know it's not always the case. Sometimes the script is just the, the thing that makes the launching of the exploit easier to download a file. But we think it's probably more the latter. When, I, or the, when the it came former. to some uh, individual malware threats, uh, we took a look at crypto miners and ransomware. And ransomware was actually an interesting one. And that volume trended down this last year from prior years. In fact, it's been trending down for a few years. And we found some additional data sources to 
basically backdate some of the information that we had and found that now since 2018, volume has been trending down. That doesn't mean that ransomware is going away. I'd argue that that means it's becoming significantly more targeted uh, as they're trying to get more bang for their buck on this investment. What are your thoughts on that, Corey? I, I, I think you're completely right. And by the way, we're not the only person. Uh, lots of research organizations are seeing ransomware down as far as volume. But I, I think the attackers are focusing on quality over quantity. You know, it doesn't mean that especially in, uh, you know, infrastructure, critical infrastructure, industrial control, uh, healthcare, any industry that has strong uptime still should worry about a much more targeted attack, you know, not a high volume ransomware attack that these bad guys are spamming at everyone that we would see in volume. But I, I, I wouldn't uh, close your eyes to ransomware because I think target attacks are still happening. But yeah, the volume of it is down and I don't think they're they're spamming it to the world anymore because there's too many protections that catch that obvious uh, attempt. So they're trying to pick their targets, use much more sophisticated techniques to actually break in and more manually install ransomware and trigger it all at once for these more big, big game ransomware. Uh, so for time's sake, let's pivot to some of the key takeaways from the report. Again, there's tons more good content within it itself. Watchguard.com slash security report if you want to check it out. But let's start with the first big takeaway we had, and that was egress filter to def defang threats that do get in. This basically boils down to like adopting a zero trust principle across your entire network, including for outbound traffic too. Like eventually something can potentially slip through and you still have a chance of blocking it further down the kill chain um, by preventing that outbound communication where yes, something might be technically infected or at least have a stager on it. But if it can't connect back to a command and control server, it's effectively neutered right then and there. And this kind of comes from that IRC botnet that we saw um, where like the reality is you guys probably aren't monitoring IRC traffic outbound if you're allowing it. And if you allow that, then you basically facilitate the whole communication. So why allow it in the first place if you don't have a business reason to allow certain protocols out? Yeah, and IRC is a good and easy example, but there's a lot of threats that spawn outgoing connections because they know you have a firewall and it might be TFTP, it might be, shoot, people have hid stuff in DNS. Uh, obviously, I will admit, you know, more modern malware is going to use HTTPS, which is legit, and you can't egress filter most likely because you have to allow it. So definitely use the security services as well on any ports you do allow out. But egress filtering is going to block a lot. You know, if you have a firewall not allowing attackers to get in on a port, their only option to to create a command and control is an outgoing connection. And if you're limiting to them to only a couple legitimate services, it forces them to use those, which maybe you have more ability to scan. Uh, so yeah, I, I think beyond IRC, egress filtering is very valuable. Uh, next key takeaway we had was all about patch patch management and patching policies within an organization. Uh, Corey, you want to cover this one? Yeah, I mean, this is pretty obvious. Uh, many, many, many of the things we see in our report are old software vulnerabilities, things that could be patched. If you read our report advice, we realize that this is advice at a high level you get over and over. And there are challenges to patching. So we talk about, you know, a, a little bit about how you can manage the patching, make sure at least the most at-risk servers with public connections are patched. Uh, but 
but I'm sure you get it. I'm sure it's easy for us to say that you should patch things. Uh, one of the things we focused on in the report is don't forget it's not just software, but it could be hardware, IoT devices, things that you don't think about quite as often. Uh, so uh, if you do focus on anything, you probably already have a vulnerability management and patching procedure. But when's the last time you got all your hardwares, your switches, your webcams updated? Is that part of your patching policy? Uh, perhaps that, that yep. as well. And then the final key takeaway from the overall report basically boiled down to business continuity and disaster recovery. Like, Are you comfortable that you can recover from ransomware right now? And I'd argue, argue with an additional tidbit of are you comfortable of recovering without paying the ransom to get access to your data back? And that is kind of grounded in having a good and tested business continuity and disaster recovery plan. Like one of the big things is, yes, all of us know to do updates and make sure we keep our data backed up. But have you been testing that recently? Uh, and if you haven't, then you're potentially leaving yourself wide open to a failed system preventing you from recovering. Um, Corey, anything else you want to add to that one from a CIO, CISO levels? Yeah, I would just say this is one of the most high value, just like adding MFA, this is a super high value thing that you should focus effort on. Getting a really good business continuity disaster recovery planning program is hard. It's going to take work. Uh, when you're really busy, it, it really, you know, you're planning for a rainy day emergency that you don't even know when is coming. So it's an easy thing for you mentally or emotionally to deprioritize. But the truth is, uh, I'm at a vendor, our firebox is blocking a lot of this. That's why we know about it. I'm at a vendor that tells you we can do a good job at preventing 99% of these things if you configure properly, and we can. But the truth is, you're never going to block everything. So as a CSO, the only way I can sleep at night knowing this is a zero-sum game. There's no way I can defend against everything out there and run a business without cutting the business off. There is going to be risk exposure no matter how good I am at my job. And there's just simple mistakes humans can make that regardless of technical controls that a, a threat can get in. So really the first thing you want to do as an organization is make sure if worst case happens, can I keep my business running quickly? And if you plan for that, it's like you can rest easy. You still have a lot of work to, to maintain security and to try to prevent things because you do want to still try to prevent them. But you know you have that safety net. You know that if you do fall, you know, it's like climbing. It's like solo climbing versus climbing with the rope. You know, solo climbing, one mistake and you're gone, which is maybe why alpinists love it. But rope climbing, one mistake. You'll fall, you might get a few bruises, but you're going to live another day. So business continuity, disaster recovery. I know it's hard to put effort in these rainy day things that when you're so busy with other things, you're, you're, you don't know when or if you're going to use it. By the way, I do think it's a matter of when, not if. Uh, but it will just make your life so much easier in every way because you know for the little things you have to defer and you have to compromise till you get to them, you have the safety 100%. So that was the rapid fire uh, coverage of our latest quarterly internet security report. I've definitely go into more detail in the report itself. Check out the webinar that Corey and Trevor recently did. Um, but to that end, like, I, I guess it's time to wrap it up and wait for the next CISA alert that we're going to discuss next week. Yeah. What you have us for next month's government? <laughs> Man, hopefully nothing. Hopefully it's, oh, all the world's problems are solved and we're now safe. <laughs> hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. As always, if you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. 
you have any questions on today's topics or suggestions for future episode topics, you can reach out to us on Twitter. I'm at XORRO underscore. Corey's at SecAdept. The both of us are at hashtag the 443 podcast. Thanks again for listening, and you will hear from us next week.